April again. It's April again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it? Did it never stop? Has it been April this whole time? It's been March this whole time, really, hasn't it? But no, we we have finally started to emerge from uh, the our, our caves that we've been hiding in for the past year. Um, I believe the date of uh, the great unlocking is uh, two months' time. Uh, that's when all of the uh, rules will be gone. I don't know if one could call it normality or, or whether everyone will be behaving exactly as they did in January 2020, but um, that is uh, within sight, as it were. I have really exciting news. I went to a different supermarket. Wait, which one? I went to Marks and Spencers. Okay, hang on. You went to Marks and Spencers? I did. I looked at the Capri trousers. See, I was going to have a conversation with you about <laughs> what... Because we had a conversation a few weeks ago about what it meant to be working class. I obviously having very little insight into this. And I was going to ask you about it. But now I feel as if you've just sort of distanced yourself <laughs> from your roots here. I mean, it's Marks and Spencers. Come on. My parents didn't even shop at Marks and Spencers. They shop at Waitrose. That's worse. Is that what? Is that posher? Waitrose is worse. Is it the posher one? Yes, because I've never seen Marks and Spencers sell a 12 punnet of hand-peeled, ready-boiled quail's eggs. An item which will forever be seared into my memory because it was so ludicrously meaningless. Oh, is that the Waitrose that used to be where, near where we used to live? Yes, the uh, only shop in the area and thus the shop I occasionally had to frequent. Yeah. Always a wild time. They have a very nice florist and an alarming amount of cheese. The best thing about that Waitrose was the donuts. They had oh, these true. beautiful and absolutely delicious pink iced donuts um and uh i miss i miss them very much but then i miss donuts and cakes generally i haven't been able to get much variety for the past year and that's one thing i'll very much look forward to um but marks and spencers man all right well to be fair right wow i should preface this by saying i had to return a pair of work trousers because i have a new job yay yay um i had to return a pair of work trousers because of the crime that is feminine clothes sizes oh yeah um and then i just went for a peruse of marks and spencers but i just i had to share it i know the supermarket segment is an informal part of this podcast but i feel like it's a it's a core center yeah thing of what it makes it what it is i can't stop it now it's become a runaway train a runaway train of i went to marks and spencers the trout they had a lot of work trousers did you know that Yes, you said that they might become the next department store. I guess, like, I was looking around it, and I was there like, this is basically a Debenhams, but with more food, right? Like, that's yeah. basically what a Marks and Spencers is these days. See, I was going to say I couldn't think of something lighthearted to begin with, but you've, you've, you've done it. So this this was what I was going to ask you about was we had this interesting conversation a few weeks ago and I thought that your perspective was very interesting because in politics there's always a lot of talk about what it means to be working class and oh the Tories are winning working class voters, uh, Labour's losing them, Corbyn's alienating them, Corbyn's winning too many of them. This was wild you see. When Corbyn was elected Labour leader I remember and very distinctly People saying that the problem with Corbyn is that he would only appeal to core Labour voters. And then in 2017, he appealed to not only them, but also to many middle class people. And the criticism instantly switched to Corbyn's appealing to middle class people and he's not 
uh, directing labor uh, policy at the uh, the poorest. And I, I just kind of was like, what? I thought your criticism was that he wasn't appealing to enough middle class people. Now you're saying he's appealing to too many middle class people. He basically couldn't, he could do nothing right, but that's a sidestep. So what we talked about was what, what does it mean to be working class? Because there's a lot of people who are, say, MPs earning many, many tens of thousands of pounds a year who live in very beautiful houses are as far removed as you could get from, you know, living in uh, a council house, for instance, who continue to proclaim that they are working class. Um, and, uh, you know, people who earn millions of pounds a year who continue to proclaim that they're working class. And it's very baffling to see how this has become sort of cultural identification. Mm. And you had an interesting insight into what defines that and uh, where, what, what was it? Well, I remember you were quite baffled by my answer, which is they're not working class anymore. Because I think in the UK, there's like a real entrenched idea that you're, you are your class for life. And I don't think that's true. I think that we can, you can move from counterculture to counterculture and from class to class over time. And that what you grew up in doesn't define what you end up being. Like, like Alan, was Alan Sugar a classic example of this? A, a rich man who claims he's working class? Oh, Alan Sugar is a perfect example of this. The man is... is it, I he's got a fucking title! Yeah, he, and he is, he is incredibly wealthy to the point where he just kind of gives out hundreds of thousands of pounds of his own money to people who have no idea what they're doing with it um, and doesn't even bat an eyelid. And yet there is no question he still proclaims himself to be working class. Um, and... Uh, I, I guess I found that baffling. He's not working class anymore. Yeah. He was raised working class, but he doesn't have a blinking clue what it's like to be working class anymore. He's like thought he's like forty well, I don't know how old he is, like fifty years removed from it. Like, in my opinion, you like the further you get from that time, the more removed you are. Like I find it's a question of relatability because culture changes so fast right so what he remembers as being the, the core tenets of working class life that's not the same anymore working class looks different now compared to what it did like 50 years ago like working class nowadays it's like you probably still have a smartphone and bits and bobs like that because these things change all the time so if you were raised working class it to my to my opinion at least it very much doesn't mean that you are still working class today like, yeah, is what I would say. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would. Um, well, I mean, what would you consider yourself? I would consider myself middle class, which I think would surprise quite a lot of people, um, both from hearing me talk, which we'll bloody well get to Northerners being. Oh yes, yes. See, this is what's funny to any listeners to this podcast is that people who grew up with Paige regard her as posh. Yeah, God, in my... Um, Which in is my, amazing. In my high school, in my area, I, I legitimately was like that posh, well-off girl that no one, like, ever like, you know, <laughs> shed a tear for the girl who got to go on nice holidays and all that. But, like, um, no, I was the posh, well-off girl in my school, 100%. I remember when I said to you, no, I'm middle class. You looked so flabbergasted, like your world had changed on its axis. Well, I, I mean... That's, that sounds terrible. It sounds like I, I thought all Northerners were working class, which is not what I think. It was more that you have talked a lot about how you struggled growing up and yeah. indeed how you, your family like had a lot of difficulties and about 
where they came from. And so I was surprised that you wouldn't identify yourself as such. My parents, my mum would bloody well kill me if I said this, because a lot of people who are from those communities really hate the label of working class. But like my parents, I would definitely class as uh, working class. My mum, I think, would be borderline. But realistically, if I were to look at her situation, I think I would call her working class. My dad, 100% mega working class family, all minors, all very, very poor, all living in like these areas for long, gen- long periods of times across many generations. Like, um, but I'm not. I don't inherit that from them. Like, I'm the child of these people, but I definitely didn't inherit that lifestyle. I was raised comfortably until my dad got sick and we fell into a lot of misfortune. Yeah, no, I would not consider myself working class because I knew people at school who were working class and like their lives were not like mine. Their lives were very hard. And then obviously I came down south and it's that, I think it's what I was saying earlier about everything is relative and the definitions of what class are, they change depending on time and they change depending on location. So what is middle class up north definitely looks different to what middle class is down south because I was middle class. I was a middle class northerner um, from one of the poorest parts of the UK. And like when I, I remember when I first made friends with you and with my fiance, how we would just kind of share school memories. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know, like in the autumn when your school floods because of the rain. And then, yeah, no, yeah, with the buckets and the changing rooms because the roof, they can't afford to fix the roof. So it just rains through the building. No. I mean, I do remember having to still use chalkboards in the early 2000s, but that was because all the schools were underfunded because of the legacy of Thatcherism. By, by, a, few year, by a few years later, like we all had super whiteboards because the money from the New Labour had finally started reaching us. But I, I, I no, it, the buckets to fix to like catch the leaks is stories I'd heard from my dad from the 1990s, not oh, yeah. stories I hear from my generation about our childhoods. That's, and my know. school is considered to be one, like the best non-private school in the area. Like that was, we were like the the pinnacle and our school flooded all the time. Our roof, like when I came to uni, like a year later, that same roof got ripped off the school in high winds and flipped onto the playground only like half an hour after lunch break had ended. It could have killed a lot of kids. Jeez. I know, but that's middle class up there in Doncaster. That's middle class. <laughs> oh, this is your secondary school as well. My secondary school. Yeah, my, mine, I was thinking about the, the primary school with like the, the whiteboards and stuff. So that was even, that was a lot longer ago mm. than, than yours. So you're, you're talking about like the late 2000s. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I'm talking about uh, 2005 through 2012. Yeah, like that's unbelievable. And it was like that, that recently. And yeah, people are always shocked when I talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, no, but that's not, it's, it's, these things are a lot more fluid and i think because the uk is so like south centric we forget that the whole of the uk doesn't live by those exact definitions and standards like things look different in poorer parts of the uk and in a poorer part of the uk i'm middle class which i don't know if i would qualify as if i'd grown up down here yeah and but kind of the problem when you start to apply these kinds of definitions to politics and voting patterns is is that the way in which people try to categorize working class middle class mm. are very very rigid and outdated uh the most famous ones are the sort of economic categories abc1 and c2de and they're generally mapped as being mm. richest poorest but you know 
you would probably be fitted into the ABC1 uh, category. Um, and, you know, someone who in the north who's retired but has a ton of money now that they've saved up would end up being classed as C2DE, which is tends to be what happens. Like a lot of young mm. people with very little money who work in certain occupations that they're paid very little for but are classed as middle-class occupations yeah. are considered middle-class and people who are retired and therefore not earning technically are considered uh, working class. It's useless definitions, especially when mm. you look at it by income and you see that people on lower incomes are overwhelmingly voting Labour and overwhelmingly voted yeah. for Corbyn. And like, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's intensely frustrating because we need to have an actual conversation in terms of just political science of how do we actually analyze who in terms of class is voting for these parties mm. because these are not things you can just categorize by saying oh this occupation this this system we developed 40 years ago or whatever to figure out who's in which class uh, yeah it works we'll apply it to 2021 ludicrous yeah. no that's not going to work it's just going to lead to a labor party that is dedicated to pursuing the votes of what it thinks is the working class but is actually a category group of people who are just generally just old mm. it's pretty much you you look at these polls right and it's like oh look all these working class people they're voting tory or all these working class people are voting leave and it's like no generally what the reason why those numbers are so high is because most people in that category are just old and old people are generally more tory it is not about income or even about class it's about age mm. it's about age and frankly culture and and media literacy and and things that are not easily categorized mm which means that it's harder for people to just come up with simple explanations like, oh, Corbyn bad. There's no denying that in the UK, class is really important and that classism is very real, but it's a lot more complicated and transformative and transition and 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 um, temporary than people think it is. Like there have been portion, there have been parts of my life where I've definitely experienced being working class and have been treated like it. Like when I came down south and my accent was stronger, I definitely got. I definitely experienced being treated differently to how I was treated up north. Um, shout out to the script writing class in which I was cast as the villain every time because I sounded quote unintelligent. Wow. Which is what another girl said to my face as in an effort to compliment me, and That's... I was like, "I'm not acting. This is just my voice." Also, you're classist as fuck. Come on. So. It's time for the poll. Oh my god. You're welcome. Oh my god. Do you like it? Oh. Do you like it? I could do it again. Yes, it is time to talk about the opinion polls. Last month we talked about how about halfway through March the polls started to look increasingly worse and worse for Labour and Starmer, uh, but they hadn't done in February, so we were sort of waiting to see that would bear out and it has borne out labor's gone to be seven points behind in april compared to uh i believe about one point behind in january so a lot of people have been talking about a vaccine bounce people swinging behind the conservatives as they see more and more people get vaccinated against covid um some people have disagreed with that i don't think it's quite the vaccine bounce that people say it is but i do think that there has been a tendency of people to say labor's been telling us the tories are incompetent for a year and they've just done the best vaccine rollout on the planet i don't really agree that they're incompetent anymore is what people seem to think that seven point lead would lead to a clear tory majority 
of somewhere in the region of uh, 40 seats, uh, with Labour only winning about 20 more seats than in 2019, which I imagine some Starmer fans would be happy about, but I, I would say that's still a defeat, and it's quite a hefty defeat, and it's not something we should be satisfied with in any way. Polling stuff. Um, in the last month, Johnson's approval has, I wouldn't say shot up, but it's it's substantially improved. His net approval is now positive, plus four for the first time since last May. And like 44% of the public think he's doing a good job. They approve of him, 40% disapprove. Um, Starmer, however, has plunged to his lowest approval rating uh, ever. Um, he's now on minus one, which while some people would say that's good compared to the minus double digits that Miliband and Corbyn often got, he was on plus 19 uh, less than a year ago. So to quite a fall, and most of it has come within the past five months and uh you know it, it it doesn't if you're to say there's a vaccine bounce it should only affect the tory voting intention and be temporary uh this vaccine bounce has affected best prime minister polling which now shows stammer 14 points behind approval ratings of both boris and Keir, um and voting intention and that's not that's not a temporary feel good bounce that's a lots of people have decided they like the tories bounce Everybody's really keen to get back out in the world and that the vaccine and the gradual opening up is definitely helping. I think part of it is like you're saying with the saying the Tories are incompetent, the Tories are incompetent, which is true. Um, but Labour aren't offering anything else is what I would say when they say they're incompetent. They're not saying how or at least I've from my from my limited <laughs> perusing of the Internet. I, I feel like there's a lot of they're incompetent. They aren't like they're not doing this well but then there's not much solution giving or what we what would we do instead i feel like that's the failure of messaging like i am a little bit plugged in to the politics sphere mostly because of you i do think that in a lot of ways i'm probably a, i'm probably about as connected or about as disconnected as like your average joe which is why my, my perspective is kind of helpful right yeah and I, i'm definitely i'm definitely and i'm i'm a labor voter and i'm seeing that gap in messaging so God knows if you're a Tory and you're reading different feeds or following different people, you're not going to see anything like that. Like if if I am, I'm the bloody target market. I'm I'm a shoe I'm a shoe in labour voter, and I don't feel like I've seen much much at all of um arguing what would we do differently or the vaccine rollout's been great, but that's not their work. That's the NHS's. Yes. And I feel like that's a message you could really exploit is the fact that the Tories have got fuck all to do with the competency of the vaccine rollout. That's all the work of the amazing people volunteering and working with behind the scenes for and around and supporting the NHS and the rollout itself. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This has been, it's so frustrating to see all over the press, Labour people, people close to the leadership, and even Starmer himself saying that this is a vaccine bounce. In other words, implicitly agreeing with the idea that the Tories are responsible for the rollout. If I was Labour leader, my line would be, you had nothing to do with this. The reason the vaccines have been rolled out so well is because of the National Health Service and the efficiency of a nationalised, joined-up health service mm. which we do not see in any other nation the national health service is unique there is a reason why this country was able to mobilize and marshal the resources of an entire joined up health system to deliver this vaccination system like clockwork and it is because every single aspect of it is under the same roof 
That is not the case in America. It's not the case in Germany or France or Spain or Portugal. And the Tories have been trying to defund it, privatise it every single day since 2010. And if they are allowed to continue in office, the NHS would not be able to do something like this again. That would be my line. I would be saying, look, you shouldn't be thanking the Tories for this vaccine. You should be thanking the NHS. And if you want to thank the NHS, the best thing you can do is to vote Labour. It kind of boggles my mind, really, that Starmer and these other high-up Labour folks are going, oh, yeah, this is a vaccine bounce. Because all they're really doing is giving a... They're doing the Tories' work for them. Yeah. Of being like, the Tories have done really good. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? He spent <laughs> a year saying, doing? the Tories are doing great. I agree with them. I support them. Uh, and whenever there's a bounce in the polls for them, oh, it's because they're doing great. It's like, no, how about what are you doing? whenever there's a bounce in the polls for them, it's because you're doing crap. I'm sorry, but there is an aspect to this vaccine bounce, I think, which is to do with the fact that Starmer spent a year saying two things and two things only. One, the Tories are incompetent which, as you say, is true. Uh, and two, Labour is under new management. And those things only work, and I said this on Twitter, those things only work if the voters, A, think the Tories are incompetent, which they don't, and a big part of that is because of the media, and two, if they like Starmer. And they did, and they don't anymore. With under new management, it's been a year. Yeah, it's, it's been not, a year. It's not new anymore, A. And B, I don't feel like I've seen much managing. Yeah, more like mismanagement. Well, just not doing anything. Like I, I've been unlucky enough to experience some bad management in my in my workplaces over time, um, and like it just smacks of someone who's just up there doing nothing. What you doing? What you doing? There's not much for you to do at the moment. I know that's a gross understatement of I'm sure all the stuff he has to talk about in Parliament and etc. But like, it's not like he can go to Barbados. Like, what you doing? Why aren't you doing anything? I mean, it's it's very easy for his supporters to say, well, he couldn't go out and do rallies or public meetings and stuff. There's but so much more you could do, though. You could do bloody live streams. Well, exactly. You could do videos. There's, like, embarrassing situation where the Shadow Chancellor did, like, a live stream speech oh, and it had, no. like, 50 viewers. And it's like, I get more I get more views than that on, like, the podcast. <laughs> I'm not trying to do down my own podcast here, but, like, the Shadow Chancellor should be doing better than me. I mean, apparently, there's rumours that Starmer's going to sack the Shadow Chancellor after the local elections anyway. You know, it's really bad. Who is the Shadow Chancellor? Who is the Shadow Chancellor? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. Is, is it funnier to see if you can guess? I literally have no idea. Shut okay, go on. I don't know any names. You don't know any names? No Labour politicians apart from Keith? I know Tom Watson, because he once wrote a bad article. That oh, yeah, 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 I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Watson, yeah. No, he's, he's not even in Parliament anymore. Um, is he not? Oh. He's not. He's st he stood down as deputy leader and then stood down from his seat. The shadow chancellor is a woman named Annalise Dodds. I feel like I've heard that name. Uh, her approval with the public is 8%. Oh my god. Uh, that's how many people have heard of her, basically. Um, and most of the people saying dislike, which is about 20-something uh, percent, uh, are just Tories who don't like anyone associated with the Labour Party. So most people have no idea who she is. Um... And given that her opponent is the widely popular Rishi Sunak, you'd hope that that would be a little bit higher. Wait, is he actually popular? Oh, Sunak, yeah, absolutely. Um, he, he has, like, He's very, very positive approval ratings. I, I just find this really funny that a lot of people on, on the Labour right will say, like, 
oh, this is a uh, an X or, or Y bounce anytime the Tories go up in the polls. Because basically what they're saying is the Tories have gone up in the polls because they are more popular, which, yeah. Question. With, like, the more people voting Tory, wasn't it the case that the Tories dropped in popularity last year? Uh, yes. So So this is just resuming business as normal. You could say that. So let me draw up a graph for you. Because if, re- if it's just resuming business as normal, my question is, is the narrative not one of Tory voter gets irritated with handling of COVID, opts not to vote Tory for a while, and then gets their vaccine because they are probably old, gets their vaccine, has already had their vaccine, and is like, yeah, sure, I'll vote Tory again. My my situation's done with. I think that's a very good observation, because if you look at some of the data, what what, what you see in terms of numbers is like, Starmer gets elected, polls narrow, uh, in part because there's a new leader, in part because Labour actually has a leader rather than a caretaker leader who's on his way out, and, it's, and it settles into a sort of like Tory lead of five, six points for a while, and then in about September, starts narrowing again until the two are neck and neck, and then in February... It goes back up to five, seven, eight point lead. And rather than the vaccine bounce, I think what this is rather is, as you say, a reversion to the norm of what we had for most of last year, uh, which is a clear uh, conservative lead. Um, And the temporary period from September to January in which Labour and the Tories were neck and neck was not the new normal, but was it that was the bounce. It was a bounce for Labour. And post January, there's been a reversal of fortunes. And now we're pretty much right back to where we were except the Tory leaders continuing to climb and I would not be surprised if within the next few months we get back up to where we were in May last year when the Tories had a 12-point lead on average which was the same as in the 2019 election Mm. except with both major parties slightly better because of the Lib Dem uh, collapse which in itself is very interesting that the Lib Dems have fallen from 12% in the election to 7% now but Labour is barely barely polling above what it got it's on 35% which is up from 33% in the election. But that's 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 nothing. That's two points. And it's losing a bunch of voters to the Greens at the same time. Um, it's it's not it's not good. It's kind of really middling and somewhat embarrassing and deeply frustrating as somebody who really, really wants to see the Labour Party succeed. And if it was offering something that people could get behind, it would be more likely to succeed and a lot of people would be a lot more enthusiastic about it. So we're kind of... Um, kind of going around in circles with the polling stuff shall we move on to the next topic yes i've just seen the title of the next topic and i am so excited so one thing uh i'm gonna leave that in navara media who um uh, very very kindly um invited me to uh, partner with them and gave me the opportunity to write comms for them they're great you should follow them on at navara media on twitter um, they um, gave me the chance to write a column for them about the Northern Independence Party, <laughs> which for those who haven't heard of it, it's made its rounds on the Twitter sphere, but some people might not have heard of it. It is a uh, democratic socialist party based in the north, which is committed to uh, independence for the north of England or Northumbria, as they would call the, the new nation. Um, and it's uh, very surprisingly, certainly surprisingly for me, uh, when they're included in the poll of Hartlepool in the Hartlepool by-election, they polled 2%, which was third ahead of the Greens, Reform UK, other independents, far behind the major parties, but one wouldn't expect them to be anywhere close to that. And I, I certainly didn't expect them to be anywhere above 1%. So, I, yeah. I have a very quick question. Yeah. Reform UK. Brexit party renamed. Right, okay. Thank yeah. you. My question has been answered. Yeah, but they renamed themselves because Brexit got got done so they were like we need to rename ourselves nip 
so yes, <laughs> the, the Northern Independence Party's abbreviation is NIP, or <laughs> as Paige very, very, very kindly points out, is is NIP. So what I was um, uh, thinking we could discuss is it like, what, is this a joke? Should Labour be at all worried by this? Like, I mean, what's our opinion on the the NIP? Point one: Is this a joke? My answer: They want to call the new nation Northumbria. Yes, it's a joke. That's fucking hilarious. Um, I think that this is 100% born out of frustration with the current parties and also um, the old, the classic old North-South divide. Uh, I think because the UK, like I said before, the UK is really, really Southern-centric and there are a lot of people up North for whom life is not very good compared to things down South. There are much fewer opportunities. There's way less money. There's no infrastructure investment. So there's a lot of frustration up there. So of course a party like this was going to come along at some point. Freaking love that it's Northumbria is the country name aim. That's hysterical. NIP is an abbreviation is oh, have incredible. You, have you seen their logo? Oh no, what's their logo? It's a whippet. I think that in itself is, is meant to be a joke about stereotypes about the North. Oh, because of the dog racing. Yeah. There we go. It took me a second. I to didn't get. really know what a whippet is. As you may have already guessed, I am from the South. Well, so. they don't. I mean, they race with greyhounds, but I guess they probably race with whippets too. Without, with, a whippet is basically a very small greyhound. Yeah, I thought it looked like a greyhound. but yeah, it, they're, it's, just, yeah. they're just very small greyhounds. I mean, their branding is very... Um, Northern Independence Party is about bloody time, is the uh, the phrase, and they've got very strong branding with like the orange and red or mm. yellow and red squares on Twitter. They constantly try to ratio Keir Starmer on Twitter. Um, ratio. Oh, I thought I thought you might know that one. It's basically a ratio is when you post something and the number of replies slash quote tweets that you get far exceeds the number of likes that you actually get. Ah. So, for example, you post something controversial, something really really stupid. Um, and you get a thousand replies telling you you're an idiot and <laughs> like two likes. That's a ratio. It's the ratio of replies to likes or replies to retweets. Oh my God. I have been ratioed. It's, it's, it's quite funny. It's not quite been as bad as a thousand to one. It's generally been about 200 to like 50. But um, yeah, it's, it's quite funny. My view on Nip, and I, I've made it. <laughs> Sorry, the name. Yeah. And I've made it like, I've made it, outlined it before, is that I think. It's a mistake. I don't I don't think that founding new parties that will split the vote on the left and prevent Labour from winning seats is in any way the way to achieve uh, social change. I don't yeah. think that that accomplishes anything. I think that what the country needs is a Labour government that's being pressured to be more left-wing by people within their own party because that's more likely to achieve the kind of change that we want. And I, I am opposed to any project which seeks to undermine the only major party of organized labor in this country which is the labor party and i i i can't really sympathize or or even respect any kind of effort that posits as its main goal the undermining of the only party of labor uh, that's what i think about it oh i agree they seem very enthusiastic but if you split the vote the tories will win and the tories winning is always the worst case scenario like there are a lot of people who've been going around saying oh uh because they are standing in hartlepool but they're not standing as the northern independence party because um, they didn't get their registration papers in on time. Or rather, they submitted an application a bit, I would say a bit late. If you submit it in February for an election in May, when the elections are always in May, that's a bit late in my opinion, but that's just me. And they got rejected for being incomplete. 
uh, and then they resubmitted it, but it was too late and they're not going to be on the ballot. So their candidate's going to be an independent. But they are standing. And there are people who say that uh, they're going to vote for them because losing Hartlepool is worth it if it gets rid of Starmore or makes them more left wing. And I have to say, I just think that that's like really crass um, and like a bit insulting to like the people of Hartlepool because an MP just does more than just vote in Parliament. They represent you on uh, constituency issues, on casework, on, uh, you know, making sure that you, you don't get evicted on making sure that you get the benefits you want. People go to their MP with a thousand different things, many of which have no relation to Northern independence or um, how they vote in Parliament. And I would much rather undeniably have a Labour MP doing that than some Tory MP. And I, I just don't think that, like, I just can't agree with any strategy that relies upon deliberately inflicting a Tory MP on people who desperately need a Labour MP. I just think that's wrong. I just can't get behind it or agree with it or even respect it without agreeing with it. I just can't. I think it's wrong. That's our discussion about the Northern Independence Party. And we kind of already talked about Starmer's ratings uh, collapsing. One thing I would add is at this point, he is just he used to be doing really well on looking like a prime minister. Mm. Um, he had good ratings on it. His net rating on it was plus eight, like 40 percent looked thought he looked like a PM in waiting in, in June. And now just 22 percent think he do. And his net rating is close to the minus 30s. Um, and that one's really interesting to me because it's the one aspect of Starmer that has not changed. The man looks exactly the same as he did. Like, it's not that he doesn't, it's not like he's had a haircut or something or shaved himself bald. I don't want to be a, a pessimist or a cynic here. Like, I'm very much of the opinion that British politics is very fluid, particularly within the last few years. Um, we've seen the Tory party go from 22% in the polls to 45% in the space of six months. We've seen Labour in 2017 go from the low 20s to the high 40s in the space of about two months. Like we've seen the Liberals go from 20% to 7% in like less than a year. Things can very much be changed. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on what Starmer could do to turn around what is inarguably a pretty bad situation for him and the party. Start having opinions on things. Start giving solutions mm. and stop giving the Tories free pats on the back. He needs to spend more time explaining what he would do in government and not explaining why he's failing. Right? Like, me and Elle watched The Apprentice. Sad, I know. It's not a very good show. but It's fantastic. How dare you? But, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay, so, to think about The Apprentice, there's always that person on The Apprentice, the candidate, who just goes, no, that's bad. No, that's terrible. I don't like that. I don't think that works. We hate that person. Me and you sit on the sofa and we roast them because we're always like, why don't they give any solutions? Starmer's doing... Starmer is being that person. Yeah. Starmer, my friend. No one likes that person. And they always lose. Um, but it's infuriating because, as I say, I would like him to become PM because I'm sure he would do all the things that a Labour Prime Minister would do. Mm. Increase healthcare spending, improve the education system, uh, at the very least stop things from getting any worse. I think that's a really good point about the fact that not only does having opinions and providing solutions engender more interest and compassion from the public, like it also prompts the government and gives them ideas. So by providing solutions and saying we could be doing this, you very well might end, might end up describing policy that will help actual people, even though you're not the government in power. 
Well, see, this is something I find very frustrating. I see a lot of people saying online, but and I suppose it sounds like I'm constantly online, but I can't really see anybody you else. Constantly online. I, I live with you. But I see a lot of people saying that Labour shouldn't adopt any policies until well into 2024 because otherwise the Tories will make them as their own or prepare ways to respond to them. A, they would still help people if they were adopted. Yeah, well, this is my point. B, if you're the one proposing ideas, at least you're proposing solutions. C, half of getting people invested in you is just being visible and doing shit. Yeah. No one, like, to again refer to a contest show, I swear I've done more than watch TV during the pandemic, but like in Bake Off or the Pottery Throwdown or the Sewing Bee or whatever your flavour of the month is, no one likes the contestant who just is quiet. Yeah, they also lose. All these same people often say, like as well, Labour's function is not to just influence policy from the sidelines, it's to win an election, and if you advocate for your policy too far in advance, you can't use it in an election campaign. But I disagree with that formulation. Labour's job is to advocate for the interests of the Labour movement, which means doing that in Parliament constantly, all the time. And if your policy suggestions get adopted by the government, that is not a defeat, that is a victory. I would say as well. If the government adopts a policy that is left-wing, that helps workers, that helps people, that gives people support they wouldn't have otherwise, that is not a defeat, that is a victory. I would say as well, like... It's the Tories. They are probably not going to implement it to the letter that you laid out. So what you can do when you take charge is take the policy they half-assed and then improve on it and develop it and entrench it so it can't be repealed. Look at Bernie Sanders, right? He didn't like hold back from talking about Medicare for All or hold back from talking about like expanding access to uh, benefits or, or, or unemployment insurance uh, because he was worried that Biden would take it and implement it or even that Trump would take it and implement it, he advocated for them because he knew that it was possible he might not win. And he advocated for everything that he wanted to do. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them, were picked up by Biden, and he's worked with him over the last few months to implement many of them. I mean, Biden's infrastructure bill is incredible in terms of what it is going to do for people. And Biden's COVID relief bill was phenomenal in terms of what it's doing to reduce American poverty, uh, increase access to uh, benefits, send direct payments to hundreds of millions of people who desperately need them. And none of that would have been possible without, firstly, somebody advocating for positions to his left who was not at all bothered that somebody else picked them up and implemented them. But it also wouldn't have been possible, to circle around back to the, the nip, without people on the left gritting their teeth and accepting that their person wasn't elected to be the nominee, wasn't elected to lead the Democratic Party, and that somebody else was, and getting behind that other person, namely Biden, so that he could become president and, you know, just sign the bills that came from a Democratic Congress. And, like, Starmer is not my favourite guy, and I think he's a bit boring and a bit uninspiring, but I have no doubt that, like, when people in the Labour shadow cabinet push for increased spending on education or for, like, ending privatisation in the health service, he'll sign off on it. And that would be great. And I don't really need him to be anything more than that. And people criticize me for saying that, like, Labour has my vote really come what may. But ultimately, that is all I need Starmer to be, is to just be the leader of the Labour Party. So let's finish off, because I don't want to keep you for, for too long. Um, we've often talked about media literacy. Yes. And um, one of the interesting things I saw this month was a poll from YouGov about how Brits get their news. And 25% of Tory voters get their news from newspapers. 12% of Labour voters do. So they're twice as likely 
Tory voters, to get news from papers as Labour voters are. 14% of Tory voters get the news from social media, which is unsurprising because they're mostly old, uh, compared to a third of Labour voters, mm. like a third, which is huge. Uh, again, like Tory voters twice as likely to get their news from newspapers, Labour voters twice as likely to get their news from social media. So it's a whole different media ecosystem, mm. which may help to explain the gap between the two groups. I don't know what you think of that. Media literacy. If you're on social media, you can more easily curate who you're following. If I pick up a newspaper, I don't get any say in any of the columnists who write in that. Like, I know generally what the vibe of the newspaper is going to be, but, like, I could pick up... Well, I mean, like, I could pick up a copy of... I can't pick up a copy of The Guardian. That's a bad example. But I could, <laughs> I could pick up a copy of a newspaper and enjoy a couple of the stories and then read a few that I'd be like, I don't agree with this. Whereas on social media, you can curate your content to be to, to, to align with your beliefs and interests and not give time to people you don't agree with or don't care about. And I think a lot of young people specifically, we're a lot more aware of when people are trying to lead us in lines of thinking. We're a lot more suspicious of people trying to tell us how to think and i think in part a large a large amount of that is because young people are a lot more socially liberal we're a lot better educated in terms of lgbt rights lgbtq rights trans rights um racism and etc and i think one of the biggest factors in young people and therefore labor voters getting most of their news from social media is because the majority of us have direct intimate experience of the gov the overall media line not matching up with our reality what are you gonna do after this are you gonna go on the twitter.com no i'm not actually i'm gonna gonna go play cyberpunk 2077 oh, fun it's good and after that maybe you should go to m s where, where, where is the nearest m s you can walk there if you want to i'm gonna go to m s jesus all right come on wow. who's judgmental now You've been listening to Stats for Lefties, which is a podcast between two good buds, myself, L, And me, Paige! To talk about, you know, stats, uh, elections, general British politics from the perspective of young Labour-supporting lefties. Um, if you enjoyed uh, our content, be sure to follow us on Twitter at LeftyStats. And if you want to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash LeftyStats. I would also encourage you to check out Pages podcast, which is a Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast. Why don't you tell us a second about that? I will. So I run a little old show called The Junket Podcast, which is a bi-weekly Dungeons and Dragons actual play podcast where a bunch of queer people zoom around in space and have a jolly old time trying to save the universe or something. Uh, you can find us at thejunketpodcast.com or on Twitter at thejunketpod.